This is Towards a Smarter World, and I'm your host, Chris Saunders. Very pleased to be joined today by Elizabeth McGuan, who is the content strategy lead at Intercom, where she's part of the product design team and owns the language of the core product, including its messenger app. Elizabeth's been working in UX for 10 years, and, and before that was a journalist. We're really glad she could be with us today. Uh, she recently wrote an amazing article uh, to, to check out on TechCrunch called On Bots, Language, and Making Technology Disappear. So Elizabeth, with that article, would you summarize some of your thinking behind how you ended up arriving at the conclusion that actually naming a bot is not necessarily the best strategy? Sure. Um, thanks for having me. I, I think I arrived at that conclusion. Um, we, we did it through research, but I think where we started was through a really careful and considered approach to testing the language. So when I started, this is one of the first projects I worked on at Intercom when I joined just over a year ago. And we were looking at introducing a sort of bot-like, very simple bot into our messenger. And we make a, a B2B messenger. So not to get too complicated in terms of the UX of our product, but we always have to think of our users in terms of two layers. So we have our customers and then our customers' customers. And we were really creating a bot that businesses would use to uh, communicate simple uh, concepts or to get data from their customers. I knew that we need to be really careful about how we express things so that we would marry with the business's tone of voice so that we wouldn't be kind of overstepping the bounds of what we could say on their behalf. Um, and so I had a feeling, and this was really just, I think, my gut instinct, that having a very chatty personality would not necessarily marry with the tone of voice of every single business that wanted to use our messenger. So it was a very practical consideration on that front. Um, and so when we went into testing, we um, tested with, with a name and without a name. And we also did testing with different tones of voice because going into this, I think the design team and the design leads were interested to see whether a more friendly tone of voice or a more functional tone of voice would work. And that was the kind of the initial consideration of let's just try different types of copy and see what works. But I sort of felt that we want, I wanted to take a more structured approach and try names, no names, functional, sort of uh, more friendly. And then we also tried with, um, with a pronoun and without a pronoun. So once we realized that names didn't work, we also tried removing the sort of first person I and removing a introduction so that the, the bot didn't sort of say, hi, I'm so-and-so's digital assistant or what have you, um, to see what impact that had. So that's really where it started. It was, was with an actual structured approach to the research. And I think if we hadn't taken that approach, I don't know that we would have uncovered this in a very, in as surprising a way as we did. Interesting. So the idea that bots are off-putting with names came out of a, a research derivation. Have you been able to, since you've launched the product, kind of find any opportunities to validate that with, uh, with user feedback? Yes, um, absolutely. So we've been able to get, we, we get constant feedback. One of the benefits of Intercom is that it's a messaging app and all of our customers, the businesses that use the messenger, communicate with us on our messenger to us. And so we have a constant stream of, of user research that's just sort of readily available to us. So we can do what we call customer voice reports and we can look at things like product confusion and, and confusion over terminology. And anything that happens in the messenger is always the most uh, ripe place for user feedback. I think if there was one product strategy takeaway over the past year, it's been that the slightest terminology or the slightest language change in the messenger has sort of like 10 times the feedback you would expect it to have. So any product change or any language change you make in the core app itself in terms of the, the UI of the product, um, the admin app as we call it, has almost, you know, very, very little impact in terms of the immediate 
um, impression that it gives people. But I think the messenger is just so much a part of how businesses communicate to their customers that it's just super important for them. So to answer your original question, um, we've had sort of ongoing feedback about um, not so much about once we arrived at the point of realizing that end users were happier without a name. The more interesting feedback we found is that it did, didn't prevent them from understanding that they were communicating with something automated. And that's the one thing that we wanted to, we sort of went into it thinking you should be transparent about what you're actually presenting to people. They should know that they're communicating with a bot and therefore the bot should say, hi, I'm a bot. But what we found is that people are a little bit smarter and more nuanced than we thought. And they, they, they started using words like, oh, on your autoresponder, or they just sort of made up their own terminology to describe what this thing was in a way that showed us they were completely comfortable with it, understood what it was, even when it didn't introduce itself, call itself by a name, et cetera. And, and what are the cues that the users had to understand that they were interacting with a non-human in a chat interface? Is, which, which cues help them to understand the context for the conversation? Sure. So there are a couple of different things happening. Um, there's visual cues like the avatar um, is a sort of the avatar for anyone that's human who's communicating through intercom is always the actual person, the actual person's photo. And so this does not use, it uses a sort of standard um, a pictogram avatar, which is not a human. And so in that way, it's not identified as a person. It's sort of contrasted with everything else that you're communicating with. The more subtle differences are that it usually is appended with a kind of a form interaction. So it's asking for things like, hey, we need your email address so we can send this reply to you. Or, hey, what did you think of that conversation? So we can actually you know, get some feedback from you. So it's usually asking for kind of a single shot interaction um, from the end user. And so there's a kind of a, I suppose it's more of a mechanical piece of content than a normal chatty response from a real person, which would be like, hey, how can I help? Um, so in that way, it's deliberately not trying to do human things um, that humans should do, which a lot of other bots are trying to do, trying to obviously use natural language responses to answer questions. And it doesn't say that we won't continue to explore that, but we found that the benefit of Intercom is that it enables real humans to have conversations with each other. And we wanted to use sort of bot-like interactions to speed things up, to make life easier for the teammates that use Intercom to communicate with their customers, but not to sort of take over their job. I think the only other thing that deliberately differentiates it is the fact that the bot is not considered to be a member of the team that it's spot speaking about. So for example, if you were sending this message from Intercom, it would only refer to the team that was maybe not around right now to answer your question in um, as a they. So it wouldn't say like, we're not around right now. It would sort of try to sort of remove itself from the situation. So it feels more like a, like a butler or sort of Downton Abbey situation where it's kind of telling you what's going on with the people you want to talk to, but not pretending to be a member of that group, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it reminds me, there was, there was an article, uh, uh, Chatbots are the New Skeuomorphism, out there that is uh, about the uh, Facebook director of, uh, of bots, Paul Adams, and some of his research about uh, users getting frustrated and feeling tricked if they get uh, drawn into a conversation with something they, they feel should be acting like a human because it's been presented uh, as, a, as a sort of replacement human. And, and, that, and that creates a user frustration. It does, and unsurprisingly, actually, Paul is, uh, maybe just the way that you encounter that, he, Paul is our VP of product at Intercom. He used to be at Facebook, so that is actually the same research that I'm talking about. So those basically are uh, speaking to um, a similar experience or the same experience. <laughs> 
<laughs> dovetails perfectly yeah, as perfectly, it really well. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Paul, it's really been interesting because like obviously Paul's um, RVP of product. He's like my, my boss and he's fantastic. One of the like primary reasons I took this job um, and has really great ideas on it. But um, what's been interesting, I think being the only content member of a design team is to sort of see how the more design focused members of the team and I have arrived at the same conclusions through separate paths somewhat. So he's looking at it as like, this is this geomorphism. He's thinking at it at a product level. And I really started off by thinking about it as a, a communication problem and thinking about the linguistics of it at a really granular level. And we kind of joined in the middle, which was, which is great. <laughs> I mean, it just shows you how much, you know, content is a design challenge at heart. Looking at the big picture, what do you think it means for technology to disappear as a tool for humans? What does that mean for, for technology to, to, to no longer be the object that to, to be a vehicle for experiences? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I always like to, and I think at Intercom, we like to look to history to see what examples there are for technology that we can kind of compare ourselves with. So, um, you know, we're trying to recreate a, a very like real life conversation experience in the digital world. And I think that one of the things with, you know, tools that we use all the time, and I referenced this in the article, um, are that they, you sometimes give things names, but only when they have personal meaning to you. And the rest of the time, an object or a tool is really something that's just part of your life. It's not something that you kind of, that doesn't, it doesn't call attention to itself. And I think in the digital world, the reason that feels kind of surprising to us is that marketing and design have really merged into this amorphous thing. Uh, and so we feel that everything that is designed should also be something that is marketed and shouts about itself a little bit more and uh, calls attention to itself. But I think sort of at the origins of UX, UX was really all about um, creating an interface or an experience that was focused on the user and not on the experience. And I think sometimes we've lost the way with that and we do focus on the experience and not on what the user needs. Um, and I think nine times out of 10, um, what the user needs is to get their job done and they need things to sort of facilitate that process. And people are inherently selfish. Like if you see that on any user test, especially with bots, people will you know, they're annoyed by things that don't immediately serve their needs. They're annoyed by things that don't sort of react in the way that they think they should react or, or you know, return the kind of right affordance that they think they, think they should return. So um, I think technology should disappear as much as users want it to disappear, if that makes sense. Um, and I think we need to get better at understanding when we're building technology for use and not, and not building technology for fun. Because there is a difference between you know, building the most amazing game that you want to actually absorb in and think about and it should sort of surround you and immerse you into this experience where you're kind of aware of the fact that you're having a kind of out-of-body AI type experience, but tools that we need to use to do our, you know, our daily lives and our daily work should not get in the way of our daily lives and our daily work. That's basically how I see it. And I've always had this, maybe from my geeky childhood, love of this idea of kind of technology that was around you, but didn't call attention to itself, kind of like like the Star Trek on like ship's computer that you can just talk to and it answers your questions, but it never really had a name. It had a gendered, which is maybe a bit iffy because it's a voice, but it wasn't a personality. Another content strategist that I really respect called um, Amy Thibodeau, who's written some, written some great stuff in the past year about bots and about sort of chatty interfaces. Um, she compared it to loving R2-D2 when she was a kid because R2-D2 didn't try to pretend to be a human being. And so that's another level. It's like 
maybe there's more adventure and, and interest to be found in letting technology disappear. But then even when we do want to sort of personify technology, not limit, limiting it to being a sort of pretend human, maybe it could be so much more than that if we kind of took the, the shackles off a little bit. To me, the, the, this, this di- dynamic move towards bots uh, is, uh, is hitting kind of across the spectrum of UX and, and, and experiences we're creating for, for customers. I mean, at A, we've had conversations about chatbots with associations and nonprofits and others that we wouldn't think would necessarily be interested in, in, in this. And there's, so there's this, this move to bots that, that is playing out more rapidly than I think many of us who've been in the industry a long time could have imagined. How do you see that move playing out over time? Is it primarily B2C applications or do you see B2B applications or bots within traditional publishers or you know, sort of bots across the, the spectrum of, of various customer experiences? Yeah, I, I, I see it playing out um, by, by coming, becoming more diversified. I definitely see scope for it in B2B because we are B2B and we definitely see scope for doing it in different ways. I think that what it, what it looks like will look very different perhaps from a, a B2C um, bot. But I think to sort of speak to what I was saying about like the smart system, I think there's also the reality that we think of a bot as a very specific thing right now, um, as a text bot that you interact with in a messenger or, you know, Alexa or, you know, um, Google Home, where you're, you know, interacting with something over voice, which probably has much more room to grow into something more robust. I think that the sort of pipeline between an interface, a messenger interface, or a web interface or product interface, um, and a bot is going to become, the lines are going to blur. And, you know, I, I think that interface language itself is becoming more chatty, and then we have this interface that is literally chat, um, and we're a little bit obsessed with that dichotomy, but I think that the two things are going to sort of merge together and become just another way to interface with a customer. I think people are already seeing that there are good and bad use cases for using bots. So, you know, sometimes it's taking many more steps to get something done that you could much more easily get done by looking at a, a, a UI and picking what you want. But I think there's also use cases um, and times and places where bots are incredibly helpful. So I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I think it's going to evolve and change. And I think it's going to evolve and change over formats as well. So the differences between voice and text, I think, are really pronounced and are only going to become more interesting. Have you spent any time looking at the the, the markup standards that are being built around bots, like uh, BotML or SMIL? different uh, under the hood technologies uh, for engineering content that bots are, are using being developed. Uh, I wonder if that's been on your radar. Um, I'm aware of them, but I don't know that much about them. I'm, I'm kind of like a technical content strategist in the sense that I'm always thinking about taxonomy and structure, but I would never consider myself to be technical to the point of knowing every market standard going and, and being conversant in every language. But I think when I read about bots and sort of natural language processing and, and machine learning, I definitely find myself more interested in not, I suppose, I think it's great that we're trying to find standards, but I think that I'm more interested in this sort of science of how we're going to better understand users, how we're going to better able to be, to parse meaning from what they, they say or type. Um, because I think that's where we're kind of making great strides, but we're still super far away from being able to understand a user's intent uh, and the meaning and the tone and the nuance of what they say. So that's yeah. kind of my interest has been going. 
Yeah, I, I, I believe in natural language processing, but I believe ultimately that structure counts as well. And so we've got, I think we'll find a, a ground, but I believe that bots over time in order to get canonical answers will, will require some metadata in order to be able to present the best responses. And so that there's some sort of kind of move towards structure that will, that will continue to march forward, even though natural language processing continues to get better and better in it or meaning and relationships between semantic concepts within, you know, language as it's. Oh, for sure. I think I absolutely agree. I, I'm, I was more saying like, I'm uh, neither of these things being part of my nine to five work where I'm kind of reading is like more magical <laughs> science part of it. But I absolutely believe that a structured approach will always be required. And I think that, you know, when you look at the science of natural language processing, you know, there's, there's structure inherent in every decision that's being made and, and, and in terms of how we're mapping topics together and understanding topic associations, all of that is just structured to a different degree. Any kind of communication, any kind of content delivery has to be structured, has to be you know, appropriately tagged. And I think that that's just, well, I shouldn't say it's a given because certainly isn't the reality everywhere, but I, you know, to me, that's just like the gospel I would never, I would never argue with. So how technical should content strategists get? Uh, at A, we see that the technical side of content strategy is its own practice. So we, we, we call that content engineering and we built a lot of disciplines around, around that. But there's content strategists who go deep into microdata and markup and schema taxonomy. Uh, Anne Rockley has referred to this role as the, the back-end content strategist. W what's your take on, on the level of technical focus that a content strategist uh, in general should have? Yeah, um, I think when I saw, um, uh, when I was sort of became familiar with A, I just, I realized I hadn't heard the term content engineering as a, as a defined skill before, but it really spoke to me because I've always, I think I've done talks before where I've said sort of engineers are a content strategist's best friend and that they have simpler outlooks and that they're considering things at a very granular level, whether it's linguistics or the actual engineering. And often, you know, a lot of content strategists, as you say, are really concerned with schemas and technology and taxonomy and microdata and markup and, and so on. And I've done my fair share of content modeling and topic modeling um, more at a definition level. And I don't know, you know, I, I'm never quite sure whether back-end content strategists for whom that's their full remit and their full concern are going into things deeper than I have done in the past. But I certainly just don't feel that I'm a, a full expert at that level. That being said, I have often found that I'm the most sort of technically interested or technically minded content strategist on a given team that I might have been on simply because it's such a, you know, a big industry in terms of its interests. And I would be working with people who had a background in business strategy or a background in editorial and who were very, very far removed from the more technical side of things. I kind of came up through... Um, well, I was a journalist first, but when I started in UX, I was in a, quite a small agency and was mentored by a fantastic information architect. And so I've always approached things from that point of view. And so I, I really think of it as kind of not technical because it's really library science, really, it's really like organ, organizing information. Um, and that, I think that's the level that I'm at. So I feel like I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. But I do think that there's also sometimes a inclination or a feeling that things that are at the front end compared to the back end content strategist is somehow ephemeral or creative without being sort of systematic and thoughtful or basically just copywriting. Um, and I think sometimes content strategists sort of slander each other with that a little bit as well, that people who think that content strategists who are just editorial who, or who deal with content strategy for marketing products um, are somehow not as serious <laughs> as content strategists who do the more technical work. But I think that approached in the right way and definitely approached in a way that 
can be rigorously tested and learned from, the front end side of things is just, just as technical. I mean, I think the bot research that we did is a perfect example of that. You have to think about that at a completely technical level. And it's also true that when we changed words, we sort of iterated on things. And the, the project, um, the product manager that I was working with was sort of said to me that he was just shocked at how a tiny string of text could hold so much power and was really an entire kind of product job in one string and how we had to sort of the nuance of changing pronouns or changing verb tenses was just the whole team, the engineers, the product manager, me, the designer, we're all looking at this like five words and thinking how much can we you know, tweak and finesse this string to communicate the right thing. And that to me is just like joyful because I think that's getting people to think about what we're communicating and how it's being understood at a really technical and deep level. Interesting. It's a, it's a it's a an alchemy of of many different uh, uh, disciplines and and uh, right and left brain thinking and you put together quite a few uh, experiences and backgrounds both as a journalist and an IA and a designer to come up with your specific approach to content strategy, which is uh, to me it's 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 amazing to see that knowledge coming together and forming. Uh, something greater than the sum of its parts, you know? I, I wonder about the, the role of the content strategist in general, because there's so many different parts to what content strategists can do. How is that that role evolving? I mean, it used to be that content strategists were brought in almost like designers to digital mm-hmm. projects, like a message architect. They did the, the message architecture and, and sometimes some of the core copy and then writers that directed the writers. But it's become much more diverse than, than that. And can, can you describe the shift that you've seen in the in the content strategy role and it's it's uh, very many functions yeah I mean I sort of see content strategy as like a diaspora of people who've like a family that's been spread out around the world and actually rather than it shifting uh, in any one person's perception whatever they originally thought content strategy was has been through many shifts as they start to learn about the different aspects that can be covered or the different concerns that people have under that same umbrella, that same name of content strategy or content marketing or content production or whatever they choose to call it. But I think what I've actually noticed is that people had multiple starting points. It's almost like um, there's a content strategist called uh, Richard Ingram, who's based in the UK, who I think back in 2011 came up with this beautiful wheel diagram where he interviewed all of the content strategists he knew at that point, which was probably all the people calling themselves content strategists at the time, because it was it's a very small, um, or at the time it was a very small group and uh, kind of showed all the different paths. It was called a journeys to content strategy, all the different paths that people had come from and the different disciplines and backgrounds that they come from. And it was really beautiful to me because it sort of showed this, you know, wheel of color of all these different ways of thinking about what amounted to people coming into areas of, of design, of business, of marketing, of technology, where there was an absence, where there was kind of a, a void that needed to be filled. And I think that absence was always something to do with words, something to do with language. Um, and it was always sort of whether people hadn't thought about how long it takes to produce words. And so there was content production planning and uh, thinking about, you know, Christina Halverson's original kind of thinking around web content strategy was really the effective, you know, planning, um, production and execution of content. That's a way limited <laughs> um, uh, sort of summary of her first book, but it's sort of, that was kind of the sort of production planning side of things because it was a real, it was a, a journey to get people to understand that, you know, it takes time to produce good content and you should know what you're trying to produce is the right stuff. And then there was also a gap in people's understanding of how that should be governed. And so web governance came in. 
Um, and then there was an, um, a lack of understanding of how content should be structured. And, and certainly people who were giving content any structure at the time maybe weren't people with language expertise. And so people came in and started doing uh, content modeling and so on. And then even with things like brand messaging and the sort of more front end or brand brandy side of things, it was also a gap of certainly not thinking about words, but maybe not thinking about words as things that need to persist and things that need to be core to how business worked and things that weren't ephemeral. So the advertising model for better or for worse um, was all about creating things that to a certain extent were ephemeral and, uh, and was focusing on the visual and focusing on um, look and feel and not meaning and expression. So I think that that's really how I see it is that there were all of these different starting points that all existed at the same time and they were all, they all existed because there was a gap in these various places and these different people who all had language skills kind of came in and filled those gaps. And then once they got close enough to each other, they realized, oh, these are kind of the same thing or these are all under the same umbrella. And what's different, what's sort of unusual is, or not unusual actually, what's sort of similar with content strategy to things like UX in a broader sense is that we're still in that phase of our lifespan as a discipline. Um, or as an industry where we're having those regular discussions about what we should call ourselves and trying to explain to people what we do and, and how what we do is different from what our, our cousin over here does. There's issues of, I'm on a design team. I've been on strategy and planning teams. I've been a consultant. So I've done everything under the sun in terms of content strategy. And, you know, I sort of hang on to that name more as a sense of tribalism maybe that I'm part of a tribe of content strategists and I sort of keep it for that reason. I was asked this question, I was at the content strategy forum in Paris in 2010 I think which was like the first European content strategy forum, one of the, the first sort of big conferences and I was asked this question and I think I gave the very same answer. I said like when people start understanding what content strategy is and I don't have to explain it to them I'll think about changing the name because right now it makes more sense for me to have this sort of sense of community and to sort of align myself with that um, rather than come up with the exact right name to describe the job that I'm doing right now because I what I do is very varied and how I approach my work has always been very varied um, so yeah that's kind of how I think about it but it's it's very personal <laughs> the number of people in the industry that come from diverse backgrounds always has, has astounded me I, I I've seen as I look around, pretty much every imaginable uh, origin point, origin story for the, you know, finding con content strategy superpowers. <laughs> and, uh, it's beautiful to see that there is then a, for a tribe that forms out of that, that's um, uh, coming from uh, different backgrounds, but sharing a, a way of understanding this palpable stuff called content, which ultimately is the uh, prima materia that moves minds in in inside of um, digital space, right? It's 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 like the the, the art of working with with the the the, the customers' uh, experience, the art of working with the customers' mental representation of what they are experiencing out there on the on the planet through digital lenses, and the content strategist helps to orchestrate that. And, and um, you know, the fact that content strategists come from all these different backgrounds, I think, lends itself to the fact there's so many different experiences that are being, being facilitated and created. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. When I started out in UX in the late 2000s and 2007, my uh, colleagues, I was like the 10th person to join the company that I joined. And 
my, you know, mentors were someone who was a historian and another person who was had a psychology degree. And so the people around me were also people who were coming to UX with different perspectives. So that that's always felt felt natural to me that that I think it, it I don't know, it creates a really interesting working environment when you have people from different different walks of life, people who study theater and people who study improv and all these different ways of communicating. And I think for content strategy, it's you are a content strategist to me if you are primarily trying to um, close the gap between the interface, whatever that interface is, between the words and the user. And you're trying to more clearly communicate something to that user. Where I think, you know, people talk about what's the difference between content marketing and content strategy. And good marketing is trying to do that as well. Good marketing is trying to get a communication to a user. Um, I think where I would say you're maybe not thinking about content strategically is where you're not trying to be more consistent or more clear or um, put the user before maybe the business's needs. And it's definitely a balance. I'm not a total purist and think that we can just discount business needs as well. But I think that you're, as any designer, any UX designer in the broad broad church of, of UX design, you should always be putting the user first. And that to me is like the only thing that if you weren't thinking that way, that I would say like, maybe you're not a content strategist. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, all, the, the closing the gap uh, uh, phrase called to me because it, 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 you know, where a content strategist focuses on closing the gap with the b- between the words and the and the customer. I think the content engineer closes the gap between the words and the delivery. Yeah, absolutely. I've always had this fascination with just understanding how things work, even though I don't think I'm necessarily the most technically minded person, uh, like math was never my best subject. I've definitely, you know, I know my strengths and I know, but I also think that, like I said before, language is inherently a structural and technical thing, but uh, I've always had this fascination with understanding how things work. And so, you know, just today I had like a really great session with one of our engineering managers about how we can better define our system model and understand our how to relate our data model to our, you know, the way that our designers think about the objects that we're using to design. And to me, that is, if I was ever not allowed to do that because I had the word content in my title, I would be pretty devastated, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, no matter how much we separate content and presentation and delivery systems, ultimately they all have to work together. And, uh, and so we, those of us who, that look at the, the whole or the gestalt of the system that we're creating want to want to be able to understand a little bit about everything at least. What about the executives at the CEO and CFO level? I mean, how should they view the investment in content? Because content investments, content marketing budgets uh, continue to grow, um, but there's often the sense that it's just something that marketing handles as an expense or that product handles sometimes. Uh, but but so many organizations are forming business models that are dependent on these content assets as a core part of the customer experience. And so content has come from being an also ran or, or, you know, a documentation expense or an expense along the way to getting messages out in marketing to being much more center stage. And, and so I don't, you know, as a CEO or a CFO evaluating this kind of spend, how should I think about those investments? What should I, what kinds of factors should I consider when I'm investing in content programs when I don't fully understand? And it's always been an expense item for me in, you know, in in somebody else's budget. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where I take off my purist, you know, users come first hat and put on like a slightly more sales driven hat. And I think, you know, there's always a sense that content is something that you pour out of one bucket into another bucket, that it's just stuff 
and that the um, the containers that carry and deliver that stuff and how those are architected and how that the stuff in the bucket is described to people so they know what's inside the bucket, that that is somehow not content. And to me, that the communication of what you're actually trying to deliver, what if you know if you're thinking about content organizations like Netflix, where you know their whole business model is content, you still have the kind of the apparatus that needs to deliver that, the user experience of that, and the um, the UI and the language in the UI is is so much a part of that. And to me, I suppose what I would be trying to get a CEO or CFO to understand is probably not, hey, everything is content and you need to care about everything, because that's kind of an un unpalatable and probably not useful thing to tell them and more about breaking it down into its individual parts um, thinking about product design which is something I think they can understand because they might have a product team or a UX team um, and thinking about engineering and that's something that they know that they need and sort of appending what we might call content engineering or you know content design is another term that's used by some some people to talk about content within product or UX writing and sort of append it to that and say that, you know, this needs to be integral to every team. Like it's more that uh, it's a distributed model where uh, language disciplines need to be a factor in every team that is delivering the business assets. I think that's presently, I think, a more useful way to think about it, simply because the word content is almost too broad to have meaning at that level. There's a really great um, Slack channel called Content in UX that a lot of content strategists are on. Um, and your listeners should definitely join if they're interested in the topic. Uh, there was a content strategist from Spotify who was saying, well, we can't call the UX of the experience, the content in the UX, in the UI rather, uh, content because our content is music. <laughs> and that's what, when we say content, we mean music. And so they have a very specific definition. So just purely from a terminology level or how should you describe to them the value of it, I think that you need to break it down into its individual I suppose, the jobs that they're trying to do. They're trying to deliver a better experience. They're trying to um, deliver their content in a better way, almost like Trojan horsing the, the content part of it or the content engineering or, or content design part of it into that. That's probably how I would approach it um, at the moment. And that's very much speaks to where I am in my team. Like I'm the only content strategist in Intercom and I'm on the design team and I'm kind of a you know, a node within the design team that works on all of the projects. And my job is to basically make sure that um, language expertise becomes just core to the design discipline as opposed to maybe creating this separate content strategy discipline. Um, and not to say that either of those is the right way to do it, but it's the way that I feel is the most effective for what Intercom needs to do and how good our product needs to be. You know, on that in, Inside Intercom uh, blog, you wrote a, an interesting article that I think speaks to this ROI conversation, um, which is closing the gap between data and product development. It, it's also a UX uh, dimension and a customer experience dimension, but it, it talked about using clear event descriptions to provide product owners with really clean visibility into how users are actually using applications, so using products. So if you're building a, uh, a, a product but disconnecting the use of it and the analytics of the use of it uh, from the product, it, we can't affect that, that user experience or, or the, the content that's facilitating it, the, the, the language that's facilitating it well. Do we have a gap in understanding between the analytics and true understanding of how our content is being received and used to make decisions? And how do you think we can, we can close that gap? I, I think we might. I mean, I think it, it's it's probably just a given that we do have a gap there, simply because you know we built and architected our own product, and and in order to instrument and understand our own product, we still needed a better way to structure our own data. So even when we had complete control over what we were building and doing ourselves, we still needed to actually stop and take stock 
and think about, well, what behavior are we trying to understand and how, you know, we've just been creating these events and we have this, you know, all of these data points that only like our cleverest analysts can understand and nobody on the product team can really understand without a little bit of help. And so, you know, that's incredible. It's just not efficient. And so what we did was we took, um, and this was one of the, again, great choice of working at a startup is that the product analytics team were like, oh, you should talk to Elizabeth so she can help you come up with a nice structure and a taxonomy for your events. And what we wanted to do was create a structure where we could almost, uh, instead of anticipating in advance exactly every single behavior or moment we would need to track, we wanted to understand what are the core actions across the whole app or the messenger and um, what are the objects that we're, we want to understand and what are the people that are actually acting on those objects. So really understanding it in this very structural way, three-dimensional way, and then breaking those down into parts and then allowing the analyst to kind of dive down into that data and understand more about the use of our messenger and the use of our app in different ways rather than having what we've had which was quite a flat kind of structure that had just you know grown organically and i would say that you know anyone who's using any analytics tool on a content marketing site is probably using something that's relatively templated and isn't necessarily aligned with the questions that they really need to ask and and the jobs that they have to do Um, it may by accident be answering 80 percent of them but by no means is it kind of has it been designed for them to understand their data in the best way possible. Um, so, you know, I think it's just, it's like words. I mean, I think you can't not have a better result when you have experts kind of sitting down and thinking really carefully and deeply about what they want to learn from the data, as opposed to just saying, well, this is data and these are our metrics and our KPIs. And if we hit these number of views or these number of visits or whatever, um, we're doing well. And that might be true, but you're not you may be understanding the health of your content or maybe the popularity of your content, but you're not necessarily understanding um, how people feel about it. You're not maybe understanding um, how the interaction between your content and your, the marketing within an experience and the kind of scaffolding of the experience itself. So yeah, I think there's always room for um, a more nuanced exploration of data. Big data was the buzzword for many, many years, um, the last couple of years, and, and it sort of got a lot of bashing then, I think, in the last 12 months or so. Data is incredibly powerful, but like anything else, uh, like bots, it needs, it needs human support. And, and human, you know, we really ultimately, no matter what the interface is, we're still people talking to other people. And we're still, you know, humans trying to understand what other humans are doing on the other side of the screen. So you, you, you can't help but have a better result when you, you know, pay careful attention to that. That's really beautiful. And I, I have a... Um challenge sometimes getting lost in the weeds on the data side because it's very easy to lose the forest for the trees when you're uh, dealing with 150 potential transactions along a customer journey and, and making them all um, explicit and, and analyzable. It all starts to look like data, but at the end of the day, it's somebody trying to make something happen and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a very, very real human activity. That's, that's at stake. And in the case of healthcare applications, it's life and death. And in the case of uh, other applications, it's, um, it's, it's the difference between uh, making a major life decision, career change, or, or other thing based on, based on the experience they're having with that content. And so th- there's a map to, to the data that, that's, that's powering it, but, but it's, a, it's, a human, it's a human impact. That's a great reminder. How does a content strategist approach structuring content for voice access. So there's no screen. Uh, The user's talking to their device or their car or their refrigerator or their watch, and it's talking back. How how does the content strategist need to adapt for these content experiences that are emerging, which leap entirely past the screen to, to voice dialogue? 
this is the really, this is the, you know, just fascinating thing. You know, when you take away everything but the words, <laughs> where, where, what are you left with? You know, I haven't worked on voice experiences yet. I would love to, but I can't really speak to it with real authority. So what you're getting is just my, my kind of impassioned fan <laughs> opinion. I feel like right now they are slightly different worlds. You know, it depends on how familiar we actually become with voice interaction. So obviously like Alexa and Google are, are doing really well and they're getting a lot of coverage, um, sometimes not for great stories, but they're definitely getting a lot of interest. And as we become more familiar with those experiences, we'll see how much things move entirely. I don't think it ever will move entirely, entirely, but things move maybe with more force in that direction. You know, this definitely speaks to what I was saying about the invisible interface, that, that technology would just be sort of at once omnipresent and, inv and invisible. But I do think that text will persist. I think that it's been surprising to many that text does persist and that people, you know, people love video. Everyone's saying like, oh, text doesn't matter. You don't, don't write articles anymore. Everyone just loves video. But video is still largely a passive kind of thing, a passive experience. I think there's a difference, there's a difference in intent and a difference in experience and, and no one format is going to rule them all. There's always going to be variety there and that's great. What I do think is, and I reference the kind of uh, Star Trek ship's computer kind of exposing my geeky youth, uh, thinking about how voice, uh, how we could interact with voice in a way that wasn't necessarily overtly personified. And I talked a little bit about the, in the TechCrunch article about why it's important or, or it seems to be important right now for a voice activated system to, to have a kind of a handle that is a name. You know, in Star Trek, they said computer. In Alexa, you say Alexa. In uh, computer or in uh, Google, you say, um, hey, Google or okay, Google. And those are sort of the triggers that activate it. And, you know, even at that level, what that is doing is the interface is coaching the user in terms of how to communicate with it. It's sort of saying, you need to, to meet me halfway or maybe a little more than halfway. I've, I've read a couple of articles where people have said the number of times they have to say, okay, Google in a day is kind of driving them nuts. And it makes them very aware that they're interfacing with something, that they're, you know, doing something that still feels quite unnatural to them. And to me, that isn't true sort of invisible technology. You know, I sort of compared it to um, when we search on Google itself, like on a, in a, a UI, we don't really think, I think the moment that, that sort of spontaneous movement from I want to find an answer to something to going, opening a tab and searching for something in Google is almost probably subconscious at this, this stage because we're so familiar with it and we don't even necessarily think of it as interfacing with something, probably to our detriment, because I think we all spend way too much time on our computers and we're, we'll naturally just take out our phones and pick up a laptop to answer a question where in the past we would have just been happy not knowing or we'd have just figured it out later or asked somebody. What voice needs to do is to become as subconscious interfacing with a laptop or a phone kind of feels at the moment. So yeah, I think how a content strategist needs to adapt for that is, is to pay attention to those the nuances of how how close we feel to that experience. But I think one thing that makes an experience feel out of touch with a real user's expectations is when it isn't examining their intent and their, their expectation and their, you know, up to the minute expectation of, of what they're communicating with. Uh, we often, you know, we read articles about interfaces and we read articles about design and we think, oh, okay, I know how to write for this or I know what the expectation is, you know, our bot should have a name because everybody says the bot should have a name. But until you test it with real people <laughs> for the specific use case that you're designing for, you just don't know how people are going to naturally respond because humans are very surprising. <laughs> so I think the same thing is true for voice. There'll be no replacement for research. Um, I think uh, we'll need to adapt better to how people naturally communicate. We'll need to um, 
you know, not make them learn how to communicate with the computer. You know, it's like in the old days before UX was really a thing, people knew how to, like they knew how to search for something using specific ways, whereas Google has now created a world where you can just type in any old thing and it will give you some kind of useful result. Um, so it, it basically realized that it, it needed to do 90% of the work to get closer to the user. And I think just voice and writing for voice will need to, both from a delivery point of view, in terms of like structurally understanding how the language works and how it needs to be packaged, and just from a, a design and, and concept point of view, we'll need to really understand how people, um, how comfortable people grow to feel with voice and how we can bring them closer to it without them feeling like they're doing too much work. Have you used any voice applications yourself? And what's that, what's that like for you? I have only, I don't have any in my home, so I haven't to any like consistent degree where I'm like using it day to day and getting that experience. I've definitely heard, like I spoke to, there was a couple of articles that I've read about people having like, uh, oh, this is just feels unnatural because I'm having to say this name. But I also have a colleague who sits beside me who's, who has Alexa and uses it all the time and loves it. <laughs> so definitely spectrum of experience, but I, I haven't. Have you, have you used it yourself or are you familiar with it? I'm in the space every day and I have not gone over, I have Alexa, but not as a device. This is an app to experiment with, but I haven't integrated it into my life yet. But I know people that, that, that are starting to depend on them. And it's interesting to see that adoption curve starting, starting to happen. As the colleague that uses it next to you, do you, do you hear them talking to Alexa? I, I don't know. They don't use it at work, but use it at home. And he says he uses it for a very specific use case. So this is what, what is interesting is that it's, you know, any product will try to sell itself as the solution to all of your life's needs. But usually people choose a, a product for a specific job first, and then maybe that expands into other jobs. And so he uses it for cooking. So when he's cooking, he doesn't want to have a laptop open beside him. Actually, I think he uses Google Home, not Alexa. He because um, he was using, he was he was the one who was telling me the difference between OK Google and Hey Google, where that now you can say Hey, and he said he likes it so much better, which is really hilarious. <laughs> but he uses it for cooking because he can just say Hey Google, read me the recipe about whatever, and he anyway tells it. And he also has a history of all of the all of the questions he's asked it. And I and we we kind of went and looked at his history together, and I said, you know, Google knows what you've had for dinner <laughs> every day for the last however you know year that you've been doing this. And he got it stopped and went, Yeah, that's kind of disturbing. So, you know, it's interesting, like it's, it's tracking, it's tracking our behavior in the same way that, a, you know, a search would, but um, I wonder how likely people are to clear their Google Home activity compared to how likely they are to maybe clear their search history on a regular basis. So there's interesting security things going on there as well. Privacy is one of those things that seems to, uh, there, there seems to be a, a, a curve to it where it's very, very important at the beginning of, of an adoption cycle, but then starts to decline in importance as, as the utility exceeds the privacy concern. And, and so we saw that with, with, um, with typewritten Google searches, you know, to uh, Gmail and, and, uh, and other, other all-encompassing kinds of exposure, self-exposure that, that, as it's uh, increased between Facebook and Google and Amazon, um, you know, there's there's certainly a good compendium of of uh, most of our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and this is, I suppose, you know, as, as much as I talk about the value of technology existing to support people and and not to um, force them to work for the technology you know, when technology becomes ubiquitous, we tend to stop thinking about it as something that has our data and just start thinking about it as part of our lives. And so it's the, the slightly 
darker side of that is that we stop paying attention to things like our own our own privacy and there might be like spikes of of attention or spikes of concern about it but it tends to diminish over time so we really rely on these organizations to take care of our data and uh, um, it's an interesting it's an interesting my sister actually works in communications very similar to the work I do but in, in security so it, we have a really interesting conversations about um, the two sides of that and and how you know open technology and technology that should become ubiquitous versus you know having more control over your own your own data and more ownership of it I think data hygiene will become one of those um, services that, that as a consumer, we ultimately end up subscribing to um, as another, as another, as another service, you know, being, being able to be more selective about how our digital selves are represented to the, to the bots and to the wider world. You know? Yeah. I, I wonder if we'll have to come up with a better name for it. Something like data wellness or something to make yes. it more palatable or more interesting to people. Right. right. <laughs> Not dental hygiene, but, but data Not, wellness. Yeah. Data wellness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. The bots are going to start talking to each other too. I mean, I, I, I see so many of these services that are um, isolated in a, in little silos and it, you know, ultimately like the internet is wont to do, it will become service oriented and start, start connecting. So there's utility between ultimately, I hope there's utility between uh, Alexa and Google and the smart home and uh, Apple devices to, uh, and what we do at work. So that between Sierra, Corona, uh, you know, Watson, uh, Google, uh, and Alexa, you know, there's, there can be uh, federated experiences and content that can exist between, uh, between platforms. Otherwise we kind of end up in these little isolated uh, neighborhoods or ghettos associated with just one particular platform. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, integrations are, you know, incredibly powerful now. And, you know, for any for any platform like even Intercom to become meaningful for a business, let alone, a, you know, an individual, you need to be able to integrate with everything else that they have. And I think that maybe B2B products are a little bit uh, ahead of the game in, in just accepting that reality and trying to build with that in mind um, and not be not create wall gardens and bubbles that people can't get out of. I think there'll be a tipping point where it'll just be obvious that the richness of the experience that you can get from having like a, a user who has their own data, they exist in their own data bubble that, that is then shared out through multiple platforms. You know, maybe that's the way it could be structured that that will just generate a richer experience across the board and create more loyalty across the board so that they don't tend to churn from one product to another. Maybe that'll be a tipping point and um, uh, more B2C products will start thinking that way as well. In all events, it's an interesting and, and compelling and beautiful world that we're we're stepping into. I think I think I'm more optimistic than pessimistic about uh, our relationship with bots, and I, I think that the article you wrote is a is a good step in that direction. Actually, that, that technology needs to disappear, and um, and bot, bots need to to need to serve their human masters <laughs> in uh, in a more humane way behind the scenes that makes themselves known without imposing upon uh, the artificial expectations of, of, of the user. You know, I, I think there's this landscape we're encountering now that, that has uh, an ever more increasing need to uh, rely on, on what we do as content strategists and content engineers. And so I wonder for you in the big picture, how do you think the work that we do as content strategists, content engineers makes the world a smarter place? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you say it back to me, the, the sort of out, outcome of my article, which is that, you know, bots should serve their human masters. I mean, I've spent, you know, 
15, 20 years of my life watching lots of movies that are all about the rise of robots and how there's a power struggle between humans and robots. And so it's, it's an interesting thing to be like, oh, no, there definitely should serve us. I think that really um, what will be interesting, uh, and certainly this speaks to what I've learned from doing research into language around bots and just language in, in interfaces generally, is that there is always a gap between um, what you say and what you intend in communicating in an interface and how it's interpreted. And um, uh, bots are kind of a really interesting way to try to bring those two things closer together to sort of uh, investigate and understand um, how people interpret a machine means that we have to we have to write what that machine will say and then understand how people understand how people interpret that. So if machines can be the sort of intermediary between a business and its customer, between one human being and another, then in a way the machines are kind of helping us to sort of understand each other better. I mean, that's the perfect world way of looking at it. Yeah, I'm really hopeful that that that's that's how we continue to explore it and that we we understand that words and any kind of communication are not just sort of flat packages or deliverables. They're really living things and any kind of human to human communication is is complex and is nuanced and and multi-layered. So it's it's a really uh, a wonderful home and industry to have found myself in and I'm really excited for what the future holds. We will definitely look forward to learning more about uh, your work and I would invite everybody to take a look at uh, at your blog which is uh, available up at blog.intercom com. Anywhere else that uh, that folks should look out for keeping track of what you're doing in the world? Um, yeah, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, a, I'm very much a firmly lapsed blogger other than on the Inside Intercom blog, but I do blog there quite regularly. But I'm, I'm relatively active on Twitter at E. McGuan, and I'm actually E. McGuan on most channels. So um, if people are interested in hearing my thoughts about a language and uh, pronouns, uh, they can certainly follow me there. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Have a great evening, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to uh, connecting again in the future. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.